Hello, you're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wilchko. All our guests on this show are deep and independent thinkers. But today's guest truly epitomizes this trait. She says you should own your own destiny and in 2020 advised young geneticists at the European Society of Human Genetics Conference to follow your heart. Go where you can carry out your mission, but be flexible in your mind. And this is exactly what she did. At a time when single cell genomics was in its infancy, she advocated and argued for the creation of an atlas of all the cells in the human body. She predicted it could help us understand human health, diagnose and monitor and treat human disease. Our guest is Professor Aviv Regev, co-creator of the Human Cell Atlas Global Collaborative that so far has mapped 39 million cells from 15 major organs. The Human Cell Atlas is still under five years old and has led to significant discoveries in causation of human disease from cystic fibrosis to cancer, Alzheimer's, and more recently to COVID-19. Aviv Regev has recently taken up a new opportunity as head of Genentech Research and Early Development. Today, we ask, what was her inspiration for pursuing single-cell genomics? And what are her thoughts on interdisciplinary working and collaborations? Aviv, great to see you today, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Anthony. Really excited to talk to you today. And one of the reasons is you truly embody the notion of being an interdisciplinary researcher, and especially because you actually excel at both the data sciences and you're a deep biologist. And I'd love to know, you know, your training of how you got there. Thanks, Anthony, for having me here. And um, I guess the short answer to this is that when I like a lot of things, I don't want to choose between them, but try to do all of them at once. Happened to me more than once in my life. But in particular, when I uh, had to go to or wanted to go to university, I'm Israeli. And in Israel, especially at the time when I was, uh, when I was a student, things were very regimented and discreet. You actually would apply for a major. You would like apply to major in mathematics or apply to uh, major in the law or apply to study um, world literature. And that didn't really work for the many different things that were interesting to me. And fortunately for me, at Tel Aviv University at the time, there was a relatively new program that was known as the Interdisciplinary Program. It admitted a very small number of uh, students, and it allowed them to basically have free reign in the university. And they would never get a bachelor's degree. You actually got a master's degree directly. I don't have a bachelor's degree. (laughs) And the idea was that you would define your own course of study. You would have no prerequisites on classes. You just had to do well. And so I I walked in like that, interested in many, many different things. And I have to say, the computational side and and math were high on that list. Biology was not high at all. I knew very little about it, didn't do it in particular in high school, but took one class in genetics and was immediately hooked. It was taught in an unusual way, the reverse classroom. We went home and read the book, and then we discussed difficult problems. And as you know, genetics is very conceptual mathematical and does everything by inference, everything that I like. And I, I, we did that and I was like, oh my God, biology is like so cool. It's exactly what I like. And so I took also a revolutionary biology class, which again, conceptual, mathematical, analytical. I was like, biology, that's the field for me. Then I took a third class after being convinced that biology is for me and did molecular biology, molecular and cell biology, kind of intro, classical intro biology class was not the first class that I took. 
And it was messy and rife in de- with details. And there was little to no math, no computation, and no real theory. And that is actually what hooked me. It was that sense that there's this complex world of problems and that if we brought that kind of thinking into that world, surely we could understand something at some maybe deeper, more fundamental and definitely systematic level. And that merger was appealing to me from day one. I still work on the same problem. Ah, that's fascinating. And when you look back, what led you to go to the U.S. later in life? Okay, that was also kind of by accident. So you remember that I don't like to choose between options A and B, I just (laughs) do A and B. So when I was a grad student, these were the heydays, the, the beginning of functional genomics. We did microarrays with insight and the data was magnificent. And then I, I ran into actually Neil Friedman and Dana Pair in a conference in Recon, oh, 1999, maybe, and got hooked with them on machine learning with, you know, this beautiful functional genomics data that we had. So that was kind of the third thing that I did. So I had my formal thesis and then I had my job. And then I also had like this sidekick that became a whole other you know, series of papers and projects, which was to do the same thing by inference. And I realized that the forward modeling was just not, there wasn't the data yet and the knowledge to really do forward modeling in the scale I wanted to do. So I kind of flipped to the machine learning side. Well, you know, that trio of you and Nir and Donna, I mean, I remember I had just started grad school when those papers started coming out and you were really the three that brought Bayes nets into biology. I mean, it was really kind of a seminal set of contributions. It's still, uh, it was still some of the most wonderful things I got a chance to experience is where you have a way of thinking and another way of thinking. And by putting them together, neither of them actually stays the same. It's not just that you take a set of methods and you apply them to something and it just kind of works. No, it's two different ways of thinking and they impact each other. So I think that's a, that's a good chance to maybe skip forward to your work on the development of the field of single-cell genomics. So, you know, our ability to shift from bulk profiling of cells, like a, a smoothie of cells, as it were, to being able to understand every single cell in the body and understand their individual differences has been a, a big shift in thinking about biology, about how to collect data about biology. Yeah, it came from several different threads. The first thread was really that question of understanding how cells work and that plunge that I took several years earlier to really build the right kinds of experiments to do that. And the basic idea was really simple. We will have like this iterative loop. We will measure the system. We'll observe the system under reasonable biological conditions. Then we will learn a model that tries to explain the mechanisms that actually underlie this. And then we would test this model systematically by perturbing every different component or as many of the components as possible and iterate back on the observation. The difficult experimental part comes when you try to iterate because now you might need to do an experiment that's a hundredfold the original one from which you learned the model or a thousandfold. And we got pretty good at doing those things, but we were always on the lookout for ways in which to make that experiment work better for us. And it occurred to us at some point that if we were able to profile each individual cell in the original experiment without the perturbation, they're never exactly identical to each other. So each cell is like its own little perturbation system. 
And so we would get all of a sudden from one experiment, instead of getting one observation, we could get 10. If we had 10 cells, we would get 100. If we had 100 cells, we'd get a million. If we had profiled a million cells. So that was one big motivation. And the other big motivation was from having this long, long relationship in RNA-seq. We've worked on RNA-seq from its very, very early days, always in collaboration with Joshua Levine, who's a scientist at the Broad and this molecular biology whiz. And we had like this dogged determination about the lab protocol and about the algorithms that go together with it, lots of work on RNA-seq assembly. And we kept trying to push the protocol to just work better for us to work for less cells so that we can go for rarer and rarer ones and to work for lower quality RNA. We spent several years on that. And at some point, Joshua came and said, you know, I think we're down to the amount of RNA that's probably as one cell or less. And then we were like, let's try. Wow. So we tried. It worked the first time around. That doesn't happen <laughs> that often. It was, no, based it, does on, not. it was based on, you know, it was based on years and years of optimization. It didn't work the first time yeah. around because it was the first time around that we were trying to do RNA-seq with less material. And once it did, this was done with Alex Shalik and Rahun Sutija, and we saw the first plots, literally. It was like, bingo, we can, actually, we can actually do it. And you know what gave us the most comfort that we can actually do it? Was not the fact that there were a lot of variations between the cells, but the fact that the ribosomal protein transcripts were pretty consistent across the cells. Because we were like, okay, there's enough that's similar that when we see differences, we would actually be able to believe them. You had the, the built-in controls, which is really excellent. It's just that, oh, okay, if that is possible, and then it kind of explodes in your mind. You say, then I can do this, 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 and this, if I will be able to do experimentally A, B, C, D, and E, and F. And, and you have, and in like a much broader scale, which we'll get to with the Human Cell Atlas. But I mean, one thing I just want to remark on and then just get your perspective is the amount of vision and determination that it takes to say, if we just keep going and making this progressively better and better and better and better and better, and then you need, instead of 100 cells in a slurry, you need 10, then instead of 10, you need five, then two, then one, then there's a phase change in the kind of biology that you can do. I mean, did you see that coming? I mean, going from bulk RNA sequencing to the single cell, it's not just like going from two cells to one cell. It's, it's, a, it's a different perspective on, on biology. I'm wondering if you saw that coming down the road as you were improving these protocols. I think this is why you always have to keep your eyes open and be engaged in communities that are not the main one that you're at. And I always love mm. doing that because I'm just naturally like that. I don't like choosing, as you already heard. So I was always quite engaged in a community of systems biologists that were not doing genomics, but that were doing a lot of single cell work. And by keeping your mind in multiple places, I always dabbled a little bit in those experiments. We had a few papers. I knew how the field was going. I knew that if we could, there would be a lot of benefit. And now we're in the midst of what I feel is one of the most aspirational scientific questions that I've ever been a part of which is the human cell atlas, you know, and, and I'll be honest, as a first year medical student, I remember asking my professor, how many cell types are there in the human body? And I think many medical students ask that question and don't have an answer. And the idea that it will be closed, you know, in the next few years is uh, just a, a wonderful thing to be a part of. So tell us from the moment at which the floodgates opened to actually launching the human cell atlas, what were the chain of events and what does it look like over the next few years? Yeah. I'll actually take you before the floodgates opened. I have to, because the idea was before them. It was the motivation. 
rather than the outcome. I think that's important to understand. The biggest point was, okay, if we can make it happen, what do we really want to show ourselves as biologists and as computational scientists that can be done with these uh, new eyes that you get from looking at the same biology in new ways, maybe it's the right way to say it. Explain to yourself which questions would you be able to answer in biology? Why would it matter if you could? You could already show cell types. You could show cell states. You could show the circuits inside cells. You could show that you could take a complex disease tissue like a tumor and see its entire tissue ecosystem. You could do a lot of things at a smaller scale, which gave one set of solidification. And the other was to get to the larger scale because there was a good reason to do it. And having both of those things was really instrumental leading to the point, which for me was in 2014, to say, okay, it's not going to sound totally ridiculous to stand in front of people and saying, hey, why don't we build a human cell atlas? The fact that you can do something and that it's big doesn't actually justify it up front. You have to say, if I did it, there would be real value to it. And we had real demonstrations of that value on the smaller scale. So we had both of those things in 2014. I had a nice opportunity um, to give, they were called challenge talks. Um, NAGRI organized that. And they asked me whether I was interested in doing something. I was like, absolutely. And so I came and I talked for like, I think, 15 minutes. And I said, let's build a human cell atlas. Here's why it would be reasonable. And here's how it could actually be executable. And then in early 2016, I think the really things have started getting to the point that people were able to use these methods. You get kind of this groundswell. And so Sarah Teichman, who was at that time just a friend and now is a massive partner in crime from the uh, Welcome Sanger Institute, she um, and I banded together and said, let's try and pull something off the ground. We all want to do it. We'll find a way. Let's make a plan first on what it is that a human cell atlas might look like. How might you collect one of those? That was it. Just calls for people wanting to do something, nothing else. Fantastic. And where is it going to go over the next three, five years? Yeah. So we said that in the first, um, that we believe the draft atlas will be ready in about five years. We're about three and something years into those five, and that it would consist of about 100 million cells. We have uh, statistics come out every quarter. So we're just about to have new statistics, but I literally, even I don't have them. And in the subsequent five years, kind of its second phase toward a more complete version rather than a first draft, it's both about going deeper and deeper into the body, but also about understanding the spatial organization and understanding better the variation across individuals. We've been committed to variation to begin with, but you simply need to get to a larger and larger number of individuals to know that you made a serious dent in that. Is it fair to say it, it might parallel what happened in human genetics, where we got the draft of the genome, we did some version of the HAP map or 1,000 genomes? Do you see the kind of same arc with the HCA? So we, we see a lot of parallels with the Human Genome Project, as well as many things that are different because the times are different. The way we think about the ATLAS is more like the actual finished genome without the full genetic variation associated with disease. You can kind of say maybe Human Genome Project plus, what was it called, the SNP Consortium, which was about understanding just the basic variation, but not yet associating it with disease. Because the Human Cell Atlas really focuses on the healthy side. Or you could think about 1KG, you know, the 1000 Genome Project, not the association with disease. 
as you spawn into disease, you have to kind of amplify yourself. You can't actually understand disease if you don't have a healthy reference, but you also understand the healthy reference better with the disease information. And unlike in the Human Genome Project that really had to do it fully sequentially, we are seeing the forking off in parallel. I told you earlier, we did tumors before any other tissue, actually before we could do healthy tissue because it is easier to obtain unhealthy tumor tissue because that has to um, be resected or biopsied from the body for clinical care, whereas you do not get to do that with healthy tissue. So we got access to those earlier and we could see how much you can learn about disease using these tools. Excellent. So I, I, I was hoping to maybe return to a theme that we talked about before, which is, you know, in, in your professional life, it seems like when you set out to do a biological experiment, oftentimes you have in mind a statistical method or a theory or a way of structuring the data in mind. And, you know, I think that's been true for single cell sequencing and single cell genomics to, to, to an extent. I've heard you describe an experimental approach or philosophy called design for inference or designing for inference. And I'm, I'm curious what that means to you and what you think the future is of the collaboration between biological experimental design and the methods that will be used to uh, aid that experiment and then ultimately analyze the data. Yeah, that's, a, that's my favorite question, of course. Design for inference, I think it's a, an important concept to articulate. People sometimes do it, but they don't often articulate it to themselves. And I think we're going to see a lot more of it because of how much biology and computer science have changed in the last decade. They were always quite friendly with each other, but now it's destined to a much deeper relationship than they've had before. There's two faces to design for inference. The first is that you want to make experiments that fit the inference problem that you want to solve. If you want to understand what is the genetic makeup of disease, you need to do genetic experiments in a particular way. They need to be, I mean, just the simplest way of describing it. They have to be powered enough for the genetic architecture that you're after, or you would not be able to answer your question later on. It's kind of the, the simplest version of D4I is just knowing that you've got enough patients, enough samples in order to actually make a particular claim. Yeah. But to make that claim, you actually need to understand something about, in genetics, we sometimes call it the genetic architecture. You have an expectation on the nature of your data that would allow you to calculate the power. Otherwise, you can't. It depends on an assumption. And that assumption is usually a biological assumption. So pulling that a little bit further down the road, you want to understand regulatory circuitry and how it's built. You want to do that kind of causal inference. You have to build experiments that allow you at the end of the day to do the best causal inference possible. And an experiment like that, for example, should include causal interventions, which is something biologists can do better than most fields. And you have to use it. Don't just use observations if you can do causal interventions because it's better for the problem that you want to solve. And then you have to think about how do I do it most efficiently in a way that gives me the best answer to my question. That's one side of it. That's actually the side that I think people are more explicit about. I am just equally excited about the flip side of it. Sometimes by understanding deep mathematical or computational concept, we can look back into the experiment and we could say, 
it's not just about what parameters we should put on an experimental structure that is already defined, a perturbation experiment, a genetic experiment. It's not just tell me the number of cells or the number of patients or the depth of sequencing. Sometimes it goes into we should have a new kind of experiment. And the only reason that experiment makes sense is because of a computational or a statistical or mathematical consideration that we understand deeply. And I'll give you very quick examples of that. The first is massively parallel single-cell RNA-seq. Single-cell RNA-seq came from a a biological reasoning. But the massively parallel side came from an understanding that it is better to look at a lot of cells profiled sparsely than at a few cells profiled deeply. And that came from understanding the statistics of how gene expression is organized and what algorithms could recover from it if the experiment were very big. And then it said, then we need an experiment that looks like that. You still have to actually implement an experiment like that in the real world, but you need the motivation. And it was an experiment that wouldn't have been run without that kind of catcher's mitt of statistical concept, right? That's my understanding, at least. It was extremely unpopular. Extremely unpopular. Even after it started to exist, it was still unpopular by a lot of people. Because the feeling was, if I don't know every transcript that's expressed in my cell, I don't actually understand it. And if I don't understand it, the next thing I need to do is get more transcript, not less. If we were at about 20% of transcripts in the cell, why are you giving me a method that's giving me 5% per cell? That's bad data. That's noisy data. I don't like this term, bad data, anymore. I think data is good for its purpose. And data that can look noisier could end up being the better data, if it's bigger, for example. So the calculation needs to change. The, the way we think conceptually about biology will be different because, you know, we think differently in computer science and we bring that thinking. We think differently in biology and we bring that thinking. We will see concepts that we are blinded to right now. That, that is where biological insight and discovery comes from at the end of the day. Wow, uh, amazing of you. Um, now, let me ask you a rather provocative question. You started working on drug development. And knowing you, going with your theory of not either or, but both and, I have a feeling that that's the story again. So, so tell us what it is. Yeah. So again, there's always multiple threads. I'd say the first one is that I actually believe the things <laughs> I say. They might be wrong, but I am absolutely authentic about them when I say them. I don't just say them because I think people want to hear them. So for me, that's the first and foremost version of it. I don't see any gap anymore between human biology, which is what we need to do for drug discovery and development. It's human biology through and through. It starts with human biology and it ends with human biology in our clinical trials and in medicines that we give patients every day. And I don't see that gap anymore from basic biology. It's just basic biology of humans and their diseases. And I feel that sometimes the impact is not there for you to make. So, you know, 20 years ago, I think there were other things that still needed to brew in advance for people of my background, inclinations, and perspective to actually have a deep impact on R&D. And I actually said that from knowledge because I worked throughout my grad school in a company that did this. I could see what could be done, and I could see all the things that could not yet be done, wanted to first be able to do them, and then you can turn back and say, well, now the time has come. So, so that's a big component for me that is very important. 
The second one is I learned multiple times, including very recently at the Broad Institute, where both of us used to be and you still are, that context matters. You have to be in the right place, in the right community. It has to be the right size. It can't be too small. It can't be too big. You have to have the right kinds of people. You have to be able to build the right things inside it. And in that case, genetic was pretty much a singularity for me. You need the biology. You need the chemistry. You need the clinical expertise. You need the actual apparatus to do all of those things. And that gives you the opportunity to build a different future than the present that we currently have. So that's what um, was so exciting and appealing for me. And yes, it's absolutely one of those all of the above. We also do a large amount of basic research because we have a deep, deep appreciation of the fact that you never know where exactly the best insight would come from. And the only way you can do deeply scientific drug discovery is by being a great scientist. The only way you can be a great scientist is by practicing science actively. I still have a lab, as do most of our leaders. And that's, I think, how we keep the secret sauce. Not so secret anymore. (laughs) Aviv, I've, I've noticed that you're not often doing science alone. Nobody does science alone, but you particularly, you know, not, you're you're always embedded in a community. And if there's not one yet, you're creating one even larger. I mean, the Human Cell Atlas is an example of that, but really curious to hear how you think about community in science. Yes, I think community in science is sometimes underappreciated, but always critical. Kind of, no woman is an island, to paraphrase on John Donne. Um, The... (sighs) The, the, there's, there's so many, so many things that sometimes go against appreciating it, but I think the worst one is the overemphasis on the individual. I, I cannot tell you how much my skin crawls every time somebody mentions a rock star scientist. I don't think this is what our culture should be. It's not about any one individual not in the biological and computational sciences. I don't want to speak to all fields. There are fields that are much more solitary. Neither of those fields is a solitary activity. And I don't think it is healthy to espouse that because it makes people go against their better nature and trying to feel like they have to position themselves as individuals rather than as communities. The second one is the huge apprehension people feel around learning new things. And I understand where it comes from. It actually comes from our deep appreciation of expertise. I am a deep appreciator of expertise, but I don't think that that should prohibit us from exploring things in which we are not expert. We have to have humility, which is honestly just a generally good thing to maintain. And by going into areas when you're less expert, you kind of guarantee that you don't start drinking your own Kool-Aid So it's kind of a good habit in general for scientists. And so these are the two things that I think work against people appreciating the value of communities or or feeling uncomfortable sometimes even admitting, even saying, but it wasn't me. It was me and a hundred other people who did it together. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing in some way. It doesn't diminish me or my contribution. I tried to kind of pepper in a name here and there, but every time I said a sentence, I felt uncomfortable about, but I should mention this person too, and I should mention that person too, and I think that's a good instinct in general. And now seeing for drug discovery, it's a team sport. I mean, no one can do it alone. And the problem is so big and the importance is so high that it is so motivating to do it together. 
I'd like to end here, but in the spirit of community, we're actually starting to get listener questions for this show from people who we thought we'd most hope to be listening, which are people early in their training. So I was hoping, could I ask you one of these listener questions that, that's actually for you? Sure. Okay. So it's from Max Grogan, a PhD student in Imperial College London. And he says, in, on a previous episode, Carolyn Uhler spoke about the challenges of combining multiple data modalities in biology. So this is kind of the, the technical version of what you've just said in terms of the interpersonal version and its potential value for insights into cellular systems. And given that the Human Cell Atlas contains multi-omics data sets, what are your thoughts on this? And what are some of the most promising approaches to this challenge right now? Oh, I love this this question. Thank you, Max, for asking it. I, I swear I didn't plant it myself. <laughs> um, I'll start with a human. A human is a multimodal problem. It has a genome. And from these genomes, there's gene products, which are molecules and molecules derived from those molecules through their action. And then you have the cells and their internal structures. And then you have the tissues and the organs and physiology that ends up collected in things like the medical records and, and so on. And for reasons that have to do with our limitations, we have usually had to slice the human at some particular level in order to understand it. So we developed our genetic understanding, our cellular and molecular understanding, our you know physiological understanding, and we had a really hard time combining them together. And the reason we had a hard time combining them together is, of course, that biology is a series of nonlinear transformations. I call it the convolutions of life. Hmm. Right? <laughs> you, have, you have different layers and you have different convolutions between them. And so for many years, that was difficult for us. So computationally and analytically, it was pretty insurmountable. You couldn't really back out that, that nonlinear transformation that exists between genes and what the cell looks like or what the cell looks like and what the tissue looks like. So the only way you could go about it was to measure it directly. If I actually wanted to know where transcripts are located in the cell, even today, most of the time, I actually have to have a lab method that allows me to look at the structure of the cell and the sequence of the molecules simultaneously, for example, in situ hybridization. But in reality, there are functions, mathematical functions, that do this transformation. Our body executes them all the time, no problem whatsoever. We just don't know what they are. What we have learned from the last decade of machine learning is that situations like that, where there is some transformation between two things that are actually one and the same, there is no ether. The molecules make the tissues. So we have learned that in cases like that of multiple views that are actually one and the same, with the right kinds of data and the right kinds of algorithm, we should be able to learn that mapping. And two wonderful things happen when we do that. The first is we just kind of took a big, difficult technical problem and solved it so we don't have to work as hard experimentally in order to learn the thing we wanted. But the second and more fundamental one, we now have a model of the function. And so we understand. And wonderful things happen when we understand. We make better predictions, very important for health, we have better scientific understanding, which is what we want, we aspire to as scientists. So that's how I think of multiomic integration, except multiomic for me, that's the tip of the iceberg. I'm thinking what I want to see, and actually we're starting to see, is when you have, here's a bunch of single cell profiles. Here's an image of the tissue. Here's a generative model that takes you from one to the other and back. 
So now maybe I can do an age and stain and I don't have to like do all that fancy stuff because I trained on something, obviously. So I think that's a, that's one of those exciting areas where you have to design your experiments for the appropriate inference. But it's really knowing from other areas where we know that multimodal integration is so successful that gives us the motivation to do those things. You know, I, Aviv, I feel like we could talk all day. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a good conversation today. Regular listeners will know that this is the point when we take time at the end of each episode in the spirit of regular in-person meetups in Boston many years ago to discuss a big problem, the nail, and possible solutions, the hammers. Inspired by what we just heard, Anthony, do you have a hammer or a nail this week? So a nail, and it's the nail is one of the most fundamental questions of human biology, and it's how are genes regulated? I think this is especially germane given the role that Aviv has played in understanding this question, especially given the human cell atlas. So what I thought I might do is kind of kick it off and just talk a little bit about what gene expression is, and then our approaches to measuring it over the years, and then the kind of questions that it opens up uh, at the interface of machine learning and biology. Does that sound good, Alex? That sounds awesome. Let's dig in. Okay. So let me just do a little bit of orientation for those people who may not come from a life sciences background. Uh, in the human genome, there are about 20,000 genes to the nearest approximation. And in any given cell type, those genes are either uh, on or off. And they're not so much binary on or off, they're degrees of on and off, kind of like a rheostat. And what that means is that the genes are copied and turned into RNA, which makes protein. And so early on, going back to the mid-90s, there started to be technologies that allowed us to express gene expression across all genes in the genome. So the first generation were microarrays, where they would spot a glass slide with uh, known genes, and then you break up a hunk of tissue and take out all the RNA, and it would hybridize to the slide, and you'd get this quantitative estimate of how much every gene was on. And, you know, I still remember the first paper was from Joe DeRisi, who's now a prominent professor at University of California, San Francisco in the mid-90s, and it was in science. And I still remember reading that and being like, wow, this is the future. This is just amazing. Um, never before could we kind of look at every gene in an organism as being on and how much. And over the years, it got better and better. And we switched from using microarrays to using next generation sequencing. But going back to, let's say, kind of 2010 or so, our approach to looking at gene expression was to take a hunk of tissue and grind it up and measure all of the cells together at the same time. Oh, so you're, you're looking at the gene expression through the number of copies of mRNA of each gene, but it's kind of a mishmash of all the different genes being expressed in a bunch of different cells. Is that, is that right? It, exactly. So, you know, to choose my favorite organ, the heart, you'd take like a big hunk of heart, you know, and it would have, let's say, a million cells in it. And some of them would be uh, cardiac fibroblasts, some of them would be cardiac myocytes, some might be immune cells, some might be blood vessel cells, et cetera. And so, you know, you would kind of lyse the cells, which is to say break them apart, and all the mRNA that was inside would all get mixed together. And so the analogy that I kind of like is um, imagine cells are pieces of fruit. Uh, and 
what we basically got was a smoothie. And this is Aviv actually was the first person I ever give this analogy to. And so you would make this smoothie and you get some kind of aggregate flavor of how tart it is, it, how sweet is it? Um, you know, maybe you can sense banana because it's a notable flavor, but you know, how strongly it's hard to know. So, you know, Aviv and other people then actually had a series of kind of breakthroughs in our measurements where all of a sudden we could start measuring how on or off each gene was one cell at a time. I see. So the, the pieces of fruit begin to kind of appear and it's no longer blended together, but you can, instead of just tasting banana in, in the smoothie, you can actually see a little slice of banana in <laughs> this very stretched metaphor. Exactly. And, and, and believe me, we're going to push, we're going to push this metaphor even further. There's more left. There's more metaphor. Left. <laughs> there Let's more. go. So, so we, we went from the smoothie to the fruit salad. Right. And for now, okay. we can see the blackberries and the grapes and the bananas and the watermelons in the fruit bowl. And these are each, each of these fruit types is a type of cell. So it's a different cell type. Is that right? Exactly. So, you know, again, to kind of push this analogy going back to the heart, now we could see the cell, measure the gene expression in that cell, and say, okay, there's a whole bunch of cells that have similar gene expression. These um, are likely to correspond to the cardiac fibroblasts. And then these other ones here, they all are pretty similar in terms of how much every gene is expressed. Uh, they're probably the cardiac myocytes. And then these ones here are probably the endothelial cells and blah, blah, blah. And do you say that because similar genes are on, they must be a similar cell type? Is, is the rationale something like, well, these myocytes have a job to do and they need certain proteins expressed to do the job. And if there's you know genes being expressed that code for that proteins, it means those cells must be doing the same job. Is that kind of the, the logic here? Exactly. And it's by no means perfect in terms of you could imagine two cells that are very similar at gene expression, but very different at protein. But in general, it seems to map pretty well that cells of the same type have very similar gene expression. Got it. And, you know, concretely, the combination of next generation sequencing and um, the ability to kind of rapidly do single cell genomics, you know, the data type that you get is a vector in um, 20,000 dimensions. And what you're measuring is an integer for each gene that tells you when I grabbed that cell and sequenced it, how many copies of every mRNA transcript were there. So what you actually get, I guess, is, I mean, to be persnickety, you could say it's N20,000 rather than R20,000 because it's always a, a natural number greater, zero or, or greater. But, you know, it's, it's very cool because all of a sudden, you know, as we mentioned earlier on the show, there are, you know, tens of millions of cells already in the human cell atlas and it's growing. So, you know, you have what's kind of called a point cloud in 20,000 dimensions and you see kind of certain cells clustering together and it opens up lots of nice questions in manifold learning. And in fact, a lot of these ideas are starting to come in. And just to kind of give an example of one that's kind of cool is, you know, you can imagine that some cells are cycling, which is to say they're dividing. And, you know, when you, a cell divides, there's a subset of genes that goes up and down over the time course of the cell division, right? So there's kind of a harmonic motion. So let's say something like 2000, I don't know the exact number, are going up and down over time. Well, then all of those cells that are cycling, they kind of form a cylinder in 20,000 dimensional space. Oh, is that because whenever you grab these cells, you you kind of, you freeze them in a moment in time, right? So when you measure the genes, I guess you, ha you have to kill the cell. 
but because you're measuring so many, you're kind of capturing them at different state, different cells at different stages of the cycle. And so you can kind of see this whole continuum of time through this passage of cell division. Is, is, that, is that the idea? Exactly. That's exactly right. It's imagine that these genes that go up and down in the cell cycle, you know, they're doing harmonic motion, sines and cosines. And, you know, you kill them at a moment and you get an expression of the gene at that moment in time. And this is a nice example of what people who do single cell genomics often call pseudo time in the sense that I collect a whole bunch of cells at a moment in time, and they're all in different states of cellular division. And then I sequence them all. And by looking at nearest neighbor, I can actually kind of reconstruct all of the genes that are cycling up and down during the cell cycle. Hmm. And moreover, I can back compute and say, oh, this cell was just starting G1. This cell was in the middle of S. You know, this cell was G2, and then this cell was mitosing. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that's not the only example of pseudotime. You know, you can imagine, let's say, cells differentiate where they go from, let's say, a gut stem cell to kind of, you know, a goblet cell in your small intestine that secretes lots of stuff. Yeah, I guess, you know, we all start as one cell and from that comes all these different cell types. And uh, there's there's kind of a trajectory that you can perhaps trace from a totally undifferentiated cell that isn't a liver, but isn't not a liver, uh, to something that could be a liver, but couldn't be a brain cell. Is that kind of what you're hinting at here? Yeah, I mean, it's that even though you're only looking at one moment in time, you can actually get out a notion of temporality and what cell gives rise to what other cells, um, which is quite amazing. I mean, it's not at all obvious, you know, when you first hear this experimental setup that that would be a byproduct of it. Mm. But, you know, it is. So quite cool. But, you know, going back to our fruit salad, uh, the metaphor isn't over. Because when we do the first generation of single cell genomics, we lose an important piece of information which is the spatial locations of the cells. Oh, because you're still blending the cells up. Uh, you're dissociating them. So if one cell was on the left and the other was on the right, that information is just gone by the time you take your chunk of, say, heart tissue and dissociate it and put it in a tube. Exactly. Um, all of the placement on the heart is, is is missing. Is that the next step? Exactly. So now, you know, we went from the smoothie to the fruit salad. Now the next generation of technologies that are coming up now and really exciting. They often talk about the fruit plate. You know, we have like the fruit plate. That's yeah. is the, is the, the metaphor has reached uh, its peak at this point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, we have like the strawberries in the middle and then, the, you know, the little layer of kiwis in a circle around it. Beautiful. Right, exactly. So, so now you can start recording both gene expression and the location of the cell in the same assay. And so just like the first generation of single cell genomics provided a gateway into temporality and developmental biology. These new technologies are kind of the gateway to the biology of tissues. And can we start to understand how tissues are formed and patterned and how they're put together? That's the kind of next leg of the journey that's just beginning. That's fascinating. And it touches on something that we talked about a little bit before, which is what we're going to need to be developing going forward is a hierarchical understanding of biology. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this after our discussion with David Altshuler, but it's, this seems uh, where the data is actually being generated. That's got a fundamentally hierarchical nature to it, which is, you know, the organization of whole organs or tissues 
and then the cells inside of them and the genes inside of the cells evolving over time. I mean, it's an incredible confluence of, of information here. Like I said, it's, you know, as you watch this story, um, much like what we discussed last week with David Altshuler, you know, the Human Cell Atlas is just this kind of wonderful arc where technology meets machine learning meets deep questions of biology, you know, and, and just like the HapMap and GWASs got at this question of what's the genetic basis of human disease, you know, this narrative arc is allowing us to answer this ancient question of what is the identity of every cell type in the human body? You know, I, I still remember, as I said in the show, starting my first day of medical school and asking, you know, you're, you sit in your kind of pathology class and you start looking at my, under a microscope for the first time. And I, like every other day one medical student said, ah, how many cell types are there in the human body? And of course, you ask your professor and nobody knows. And, and even recently, a, a conference at the start of the Human Cell Atlas, they took a poll of, all right, everybody guess, you know, five years from now, once we're done, what the estimate of the number of cell types in the human body would be. And I'm not exaggerating that even among the experts in the field, the answers ranged from order of a thousand to order of a billion. And one billion was yeah. the, was the biggest answer. It's something like that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but, you know, and so, and of course you get into what's a cell type versus, you know, are you a lumper or a splitter? And, and of course there's a lot of nuance to this question, but the idea that even at the kind of coarsest level, uh, we don't actually, you know, have an intuition for the answer. And the fact that we live in a moment in time where we'll get to watch it close, you know, again, it's, it's one of these things that makes me just feel so happy to be alive in, in this moment in time in science. That's, that's excellent, Anthony. Thanks so much for sharing. All right. Always a pleasure, my friend. I look forward to the next episode. If you've got any questions for us or our guests, email theoryandpractice at gv.com or tweet at gvteam. We'd love to hear from you. This is a GV podcast and a Blanchard House production. Our producers were Hilary Geit, Lily Omani, Nico Raufast, and Rosie Pye, with music by Dalo. I'm Anthony Filipakis. I'm Alex Wilchko. And this is Theory and Practice. Theory and Practice.